Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Okay, and today we are perhaps tackling the central question to all human endeavor. And that is, what is the purpose of life? What is all of this for? What is the meaning of this? We might declare with some indignation, having suffered many frustrations and dead ends thus far. So this question is a central ethical question, because before we can even become interested in how we ought to relate to one another, before we can even start building societies, as we see with Aristotelian Nicomachean ethics or with Platonic uh, The Republic, you know, ideas like that, always start with the question, what is it to live a meaningful life? You know, if we can answer this, what is it to be happy here? You know, what makes up a life well lived? And when we identify that, it is only from that place that we can design a society that we know by virtue of finding out what's important in a human life, we can value that in others and live in such a way as to promote, encourage and induce that in others. But the question, what is it to live a meaningful life is at first an ethical question. But when looked at a little more closely, it's a metaphysical question or a perhaps even an epistemological question. And the question is, well, in order to know what it is to be happy, I must know what kind of thing I am. Again, an Aristotelian project, but we can do a little better than featherless biped. Don't worry. (laughs) So um, what kind of being am I? And, you know, and, and for this kind of being, what is happiness? What is eudaimonia in the Greek or the ultimate good? What is the penultimate meaning of this life? So really, it's a question of who am I? A question of what is this being is a question of who am I? But there's a twofold nature to this question, because in asking who am I, there is also implied there the question, what is this? You know, what is the world? And hint, hint, as you well know, the answer to both of those questions, who am I and what is this, is the same answer. (laughs) And it's not an answer we can articulate. It is a meaningless answer if we just presented it. If we just said, oh, (laughs) that's easy, it's Atman. It's Brahman. It's awareness. What does that mean to you? It's, It's just a word. It's not enough to tell you. We must show you. So hopefully, The answers to these questions are self-evident, not in dogma or belief or because someone on the internet said so, but because they are evident to you that they check out in your own experience of life. So largely, as we often say, Indian philosophy takes as its starting point your immediate encounter with here and now. So naturally, it requires for this kind of philosophy, it requires some level of meditative aptitude. You must be able to be here now in order to appreciate what these arguments are showing you. Because everything you need, and here's the startling claim, everything you need for total liberation, that is the fulfillment of a human life, is present with you here and now. There is nothing needed other than this. You know, there's just a little bit of perhaps signposting required to show you what is already here. And that's what frees you. Ultimately, it's an insight that frees you. This is the second point. We are 
speaking to experience, to personal um personal experience, but this kind of experience does not require um any kind of mystical journey. Yes, sometimes it is helpful to have a kundalini awakening. It is helpful to have this uh you know what we call anahata opening. We hear the unstruck sound, we see the uncaused light, and for a moment in mystical rapturous experience, we come to realize we are not what we took ourselves to be. So yes, mystical experience can be helpful. Perhaps in the same way that psychedelics were helpful to the 60s uh you know eastern philosophy revolution. It just kind of opened up the floodgates a little bit. You know, it showed people like Alan Watts like you know, it prepared people for Alan Watts, you know, and and Ram Dass and it showed people that there might be some other flavors of consciousness. As William James would famously say, separated from the normal consciousness are several other varieties of consciousness parted from this by the filmiest of veils let us not close our accounts with reality you know so william james the harvard psychologist and then you get the drugs of the 60s and that was all helpful but by no means necessary you know similarly kundalini awakening psychic experiences can certainly be helpful but are by no means necessary all of those are simply pointing at something and if you're not looking it doesn't matter how many fingers are pointing you know <laughs> doesn't matter how many books we read how many trips we take or how many kundalini shakti rising occurrences you have if you fail in each of those instances to recognize that to which all of those things are pointing so hopefully we can point a little more today <laughs> and show one another what it is we're talking about what is it to live a fulfilling complete life Now we intend to do this in three ways. We'll start with uh the answer to this question on a personal level. Yes. Theresa says it feels like I awaken. <laughs> Now, uh, and then sleep. <laughs> so, we'll start on a personal level. What it is what is it to live happily on a personal level? And in Indian traditional literature, we say there are four general goals. Three of them are limited and one of them is real, but the three lead you to the one. which is a common trope in our philosophy 3 equals 1 as you'll see and as you'll see with the christian trinity too all right so we'll start on a personal level then from there we'll move on to a macroscopic level you know um to answer the question what is all of this for having decided finally that we understand what this is for let's contextualize it in what this is for all right now to do this project uh let's let's tell some stories you know and uh what better story to start with than the story of nachiketa in the katha upanishad we've heard this story before so we'll maybe kind of zero in on it a little more <laughs> sweet cat hazel <laughs> yes nachiketa so the story of nachiketa in the um katha upanishad is as followed is as follows so it must be remembered the upanishads Uh yeah, Claire, we never heard this story before. <laughs> the uh, Upanishads, you have to remember, are the Gnostic texts of ancient India. So the earliest civilization in India, um the dates are disputed, conservatively first or second millennium, but more likely at least 3800 BCE-ish. Uh and the reason a lot of scholars um attribute this date is because of references to a certain river You know there was a river that was constantly cited in the Vedic literature. Welcome Angela. Happy um Saint uh uh the 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 Sharbel, 
right? Charmel, beautiful saint. And uh, welcome, Irvin. Good to see your face, finally. So, um, the date is because of that river. The Vedic literature generally um, is obsessed with rivers, and it cites often this one river, Saraswati, which has long since dried up. It runs through a desert now, and geological data shows us that it probably flowed around the year 3800 BCE, if not a little earlier. So we might date this civilization to about maybe 3800, 4000 BC, fourth millennium. Right? So it's an old civilization, the world's oldest extant civilization. And even then, there was this inquiry, what is it to live a meaningful life? And even then, there were mistakes about this endeavor. So the beauty of this story is that it comes to us from the very dawn of our civilization. It, this story is passed down to us from perhaps 4000 BCE. So it's with some delight that we recognize how relatable it is, you know, how absolutely um, timeless this question is. So the story is as follows. There's a young boy, Nachiketa, and he's what you might call a very accomplished young man, you know, very um, firm in his faith, very strong in his intellect, strong in his body, just the ideal youth. And at this time in India, there was a kind of culture centered around ritual. So there was a caste, a specific group of people who presided over these rituals. They were called Brahmins or priests. And they learned by an oral tradition how to conduct these rituals, you know, what chants to do. The chants we did today in the opening of our class come from those times. You know, and they would chant and throw ghee, clarified butter, into the fire. And they would make sacrifices and offerings to the gods and what have you. Basically, that was the state religion, you know, to make sacrifices and to sing mantras and, and all that kind of stuff. All right. So, Nachiketa was the son of one such Brahmin. And in fact, he was the son of India's most famous Brahmin at the time. So you can imagine like a little Richard figure or like the Elvis of the society at that time. He was just a very well-known Vedic priest. And because he was so good at what he did, because he was such a celebrated patriarch of Vedic society, um, he became quite famous. You know, one can almost imagine him in a procession kind of doing the Queen Victoria thing as people celebrated him with trumpets and fanfare. Here's the thing, though. Nachiketa, seeing his father's fame, was somewhat disillusioned by all of it. You know, we learn in the story that he felt a sense of superficiality about his life and the life of his people. He felt that while they were saying the words, there was no spirit in them. While they were going through the motions, it was just exoteric religion. There was not yet the life force of a real, genuine spirituality. It was just religion. It was just a social convention. It's God. Uh, it's, it's the stomach making a pretense at God. You all know the, the, that situation, right? Here's the tides box, you know, <laughs> or whatever. So he realized that. He realized that the religion of his time was not meeting the spiritual needs of its people. Another kind of common thing that we all experience. We go to churches and synagogues and temples and we ask questions of our rabbis and priests and monks and they tend not to have the answers, <laughs> you know, and uh, we become very disillusioned with religion very quickly. So that was Nachiketa's case. He became disillusioned. Anyway, on one such feast day, Nachiketa noticed that his father was stinging on cows he was about to sacrifice some scrawny cows. Despite being rich, he seemed to be kind of, I don't know, um, 
cutting corners when it came to offering things to the divine. So Nachiketa asked him about this. Very politely, he said, Dad, isn't it, um, isn't it a little offensive to be offering the, you know, the forces of nature, the gods, these scrawny cows? I mean, our finances are, are so robust. Surely we can do better. Now the father was so upset that this young upstart would talk to him this way, Vedic patriarch as he was, that he turned to his son and snapped in a moment of anger, oh yeah, you want me to sacrifice something meaningful to me? Fine, then I sacrifice you. You jump into the fire, huh? My one eldest son. And Nachiketa, of course, says, of course, father. You know how us Indian boys, whatever our parents tell us to do, we do. Yes, I'll go to medical school. You know? So the boy, he said, yes, I'll jump in the fire. So... Lo and behold, Nachiketa jumps into the fire and self-immolates, you know. Now, of course, the fire is a metaphor for yoga or tapasya. The fire is a metaphor for the purification practices, otherwise known as spiritual disciplines. So all the asana that you do, all the pranayam, that is all the yoga poses, all the breathing techniques, all the meditation, all of that is the fire of Nachiketa. It's preparation for spiritual life. All the meditation you do at Vipassana retreats, all of that is the fire of Nachiketa. All the fasting, all the baths, all the prayers, all of that is the fire of Nachiketa. So that's what's symbolized here, make no mistake. It's tapasya, which in our tradition just means austerity or straightening by fire. I'm here to baptize you in water, but soon there will come one who will baptize you in fire. Remember that? So yes, this tapasya, this baptism by fire. So this boy jumps into the fire that is, he practices uh, spirituality, real spirituality, esoteric spirituality. And as a result, he is conducted to the house of Yamaraj, the king of death, the grim reaper, if you will. So he goes to King Yamaraj's house. But get this, the fella is not at home. The king of death is out. And Nachiketa, poor boy, is left waiting for him for three days and three nights or something like that. Again, this is a metaphor for meditation. Meditation is preparing for death, is in fact simulating death. What do dead bodies and meditators have in common? Well, they breathe very little, they don't think, and they don't move. <laughs> so there he is, Nachiketa is meditating for three days and three nights, like Jesus, you know, in the desert for some period of time. He's meditating. And the god of death does come home eventually and notices this poor boy just waiting on the doorstep. And the god of death, being an Indian king, is horrified at his lack of hospitality. As you know, in these old cultures, it, we rather die than be inhospitable, you know. Shame is the worst thing. What will the neighbors think? <laughs> So, um, Nachiketa, because he was the guest and because the king of death had not met his obligations as the host, the king of death decided to compensate for that by saying, my boy, I'm so sorry. Here, have some refreshments. In way of apology, I'll give you three wishes. Or I think it was something like two wishes. What do you want? You know, what, what do you want of me? Ask anything and it will be done. So first the boy says, I want to learn a specific ritual, you know. Uh, I want to know how to do this very complex ceremony. So the god of death, very impressed with this wish, decides to teach him. And the boy, to, to the surprise of the king of death, masters the ceremony just like that. He memorizes all the Vedic chants. And by the way, this is like a 10-day ceremony. Continuous 10 days, chanting. It's intricate. There's astrology. There's numerology. There's math. There's rhyme schemes and rhythms and meters in which you must chant. There's a certain way to circambulate. And it's, it's quite an involved affair. But this boy learns the ritual just like that, demonstrating the power of his intellect, you know. 
the uh, lucidity of his memory. Now the king of death, very impressed with that, goes on to say, well, my boy, what's your second wish? And Nachiketa says, you know, uh, that's kind of all I wanted. I just wanted to learn that ritual, um, which is now named after him, the Nachiketa fire ceremony. Um, but if I must have another wish, then I ask that my father uh, forgive me. You know, I ask that when I return to life, uh, my father, or, or I don't even think he intended to, but he, he said, uh, I ask that my father be chill. And the king of death goes, you used your wish on someone else, someone you love? I'm so impressed. I'm impressed by your heart, by your compassion, and I'm impressed by your mind. So go ahead and take one more wish. You know, you're so awesome, dude. Have another wish. And Nachiketa then thinks about it and decides what he will ask for. He turns to the king of death, sips his chai a little bit, puts it down and says, Yamaraj, I wish to know the secret of life. In other words, I wish to know what makes human life worth living. What is the ultimate secret of death? What is the secret of immortality? Tell me about everlasting life. See, it's all the same question. And the king of death pales. You know, he, one, one imagines he spurts his tea a little bit. And he puts down his chai and he says, Okay, about that. Are you sure there's nothing else I can get you? Um, how about this? Uh, kingdoms. I can give you kingdoms that span the three worlds to the very corners of the galaxy. You know, you, we can rule as father, you know, whatever. Uh, and and uh, Nachiketa says, no, 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 I don't have any use. Thank you, Claire, for the Star Wars reference you got. Uh, I have no use for kingdoms, you know. And uh, Nachiketa is offered another thing. The king of death says, well, what about uh, Gandharvas to attend to your needs, these celestial musicians to play beautiful songs for you? You know, what about Apsaras, celestial nymphs to attend to your every desire? What about strong sons that will carry on your name into immortality? What about all these pleasures and elephants and armies and health? You see, what Nachiketa is being offered is the world. And in Indian society, it's not wrong to enjoy the world. In fact, there are four goals worth having in this life. But each of them are in a kind of hierarchy. You know, it's a kind of like uh, algebra and then calculus and then integers. Uh, what is it? Uh, integral calculus and that, that kind of thing. So the four, and I'm going to, uh, you know, periodically digress from the story, you know, and move out of the narrative and just explain a few things. Sorry, I know we want to get to the end of the story. But um, these four goals known as the Purusharthas, meaning the accomplishments of the soul, the things that are worth having are as follows. The first, and naturally the most seductive of them, is karma, meaning pleasure. Now think of everything that delights you on a sensory level. You know, every delicious smell, every delicious taste, every nice texture, every Mediterranean breeze on your cheek, you know, um, lovemaking, And by the way, tell me if I come back. Am I back?
think it's sort of coming back. I see some people moving. <laughs> There's a little bit of nodding of the head. <laughs> All right, there, Fabricio. <laughs> good, good, good. Happy to hear that. If it drops out, it'll just make someone host and you can take it from there. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yes, wonderful. So there are these four desires and the f four goals for the soul. The first is karma, meaning pleasure. You know, think of every kind of pleasure, lovemaking, delightful lovemaking, uh, sensory pleasure, but also think the pleasures that are maybe finer, like fine art or intellectual pleasures, intellectual titillation when you hear uh, some Kantian idea that's very abstract and beautiful. All of that is included in karma, you know. Karma is every kind of sensory stimulation, subtle and gross. Yes, <laughs> karma, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, wait, wait, no karma. Don't talk about karma. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny because uh, we really do have to clarify what this world is for in order to respond to it carefully. And there are many people who come to spirituality who are still interested in karma because the fundamental worldview is that the world is for karma. And the answer we give in this tradition to that is yes, up to a point. In the beginning, Karma is a good thing to live for. One should have pleasure. You know, so in Indian society, pleasure is nowhere demonized. That's important to remember. Pleasure is celebrated. And not only that, it is cultivated. Um, we do have the Kama Sutra, you know, uh, one of the world's oldest compendium on how to have great sex. You know, it predated BuzzFeed and all those little listicles about what to do in bed and all those little quizzes you do with your partner to keep the sex life fresh. No, we were on that shit like 3800 BCE. Obviously, this is a culture that doesn't have a problem with sexual gratification. In fact, reading that book, you're immediately taken up with the Indian imagination applied to that domain of life. We're pretty good at it, you know? Um, you'll see all sorts of games and all sorts of ideas and very progressive ideas about how women ought to take the dominant role and be the dom and be the top and all of that, you know? So really interesting um, writing. But here's the most important thing. Kama Sutra is a Kama Shastra, meaning it is a text for pleasure. It's for Kama. It's associated with that goal. It's not for making money or becoming liberated, you know? Those are different goals. Kama Sutra is a Kama Shastra, meaning it's the science of pleasure. It has nothing to do with Tantra, you know? That's the first thing we must say here. Tantra is a Moksha Shastra. It's interested in liberation. Its goal is not pleasure. Uh, but it, and this is so important to stress. We've never been against pleasure. So even though in these talks, you often hear me, over and over again, stressing celibacy as a way to progress in spiritual life, stressing renunciation of wealth, stressing um, uh, a lack of worldliness. That's because I speak to you on the level of moksha shastra, you know, on the level of, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But nowhere in that is a demonization of pleasure. You know, all of that stuff is good to have. And in fact, you must have it to finish with it. You can't give up what you haven't had. You know, you can't decide something is not worthwhile if you haven't enjoyed it. So we say, if you're going to drink from that cup, drink it to the dregs, you know, until it nauseates you. <laughs> anyway, so drink it. Drink the cup of karma. But there's another cup at this feast, and that is the cup of artha. It's different. Artha gives you karma, but artha is a specific pleasure. Artha is concerned with making money. Artha is wealth. So where karma is pleasure... 
And you can be wealthy in pleasure. You can have an abundance in pleasure. Artha is associated to an abundance in material security. So this literally means fortune, you know, and there's a thrill to that. Do you notice when you see your bank account growing, when you make a big killing, when you check your phone, there's a little beep from the Venmo and it's like, well, here's a big donation from, you know, it's just like, it's like, ah, oh, all right. You know, there's a thrill to making money. And not because money buys you pleasure. Certainly it does. And that's why a lot of us want money. But money in of itself is a thrill. You know, to see that bank account growing, that is a pleasure. That, and we categorically a different pleasure from the pleasures of pleasure. So we call that artha and that is worth having. So generally, as you will see in ancient texts like the law of Manu, those two pleasures are prescribed at different times of a person's life. Kama is the first thing a soul aspires to. As a youth, you're intoxicated with beauty, strength, and pleasure. You just want to get laid. You just want to taste things. You just want to smell things. But in this tradition, we expect to some degree that people grow out of that. You know, and in their later life, they become householders and they're interested in establishing wealth. Maybe they use that wealth to build up Indian society, you know, like build rest houses, support civilization, build temples, like the things that wealthy people are supposed to do, i.e. build gates and all that philanthropy. I mean, that's one way in which you enjoy Artha, you know, um, and that's a trip in of itself. Then once, you know, you've done Artha, the next Purushartha, the next accomplishment of the soul is Dharma, which we're going to talk a lot about today on the personal level. But finally, the final thing that the soul craves is moksha, liberation. Eventually, we all become interested in consummating life because we realize life cannot be consummated fully on those lower levels of uh, satisfaction. So karma can't do it for us. Although we try and try to squeeze that lemon, we don't get meaning out of it. Artha does it for a time, but even that is very limited. It doesn't address that fundamental desire, that fundamental itch. Dharma really does it. Dharma, in fact, is a means to, and in fact, all of them are a means to moksha, but Dharma, better than the other uh, two, are a means to moksha. Dharma is doing your duty, meaning doing what you love, doing your purpose, doing what you came here to do, following your heart, Insert Paulo uh, Coelho's The Alchemist with Fabricio can read to you in Portuguese. You know, that's all dharma, following your heart. Um, that's dharma. And if you want to be a musician, if you want to be a dancer, if you want to be a pastry chef, that pursuit is going to be much more meaningful than the pursuit of pleasure and money. In fact, the pursuit of your dreams is so much more meaningful than pleasure and money that you are, note this, willing to sacrifice pleasure and money in order to consummate your dreams. That is, you're willing to sleep under stages and tour with, a, you know, like a punk rock band up and down the West Coast living out of the back of a zip car, uh, which your manager would later charge you an exorbitant amount for because the tour failed. But you're willing to do all of that. You're willing to sleep and eat terrible food on the road and have diarrhea and, and all of that's awesome because you don't mind suffering. You don't mind losing pleasure. You don't mind losing wealth. You don't mind even being poor for the rest of your life if it means you can do what you love. You see, Dharma trumps Artha and Artha trumps Kama. And it's easy to follow that line of logic. If you love pleasure, 
you'll love pleasure. But if you want to make money, like you pick up Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, or you read the book The Richest Man in Babylon, we also have Arthashastras, by the way, like books on how to make money. We have lots of that in India. Uh, in fact, Yogananda even wrote a few, like the laws of money or whatever. So if you want to make money, you'll suddenly realize at first you might have to cut back on certain pleasures because you're saving up for an investment, investing in your business. You might need to pull some all-nighters in order to, you know, make the money, uh, stay at work. So you see how Artha trumps karma? Artha naturally trumps karma, you know? In order to have Artha, some level of sensory gratification must be given up. Some level of self-control is necessary. But it's not like, I hate pleasure. It's just that I like this other thing more. Yes, I would like to get some sleep tonight. Yes, I would like to spend this money on this meal. But I have another goal right now. I want an iPhone so I can start my online business. So I'm not going to have that meal. I'm going to stay up tonight writing my manuscript or something. So this is a very important point. You renounce pleasure, short-term pleasure, for the thrill of wealth, which is a kind of long-term pleasure or a higher pleasure. If we can appreciate this point, we would have come a long way into understanding why we stress renunciation so much. Once you have a taste for money, for artha, your taste for karma is at least mitigated. In other words, karma doesn't become the central drive of your life. Yes, once you have the artha, you might go back to karma and you play with the two of them for a while. But look how dharma trumps them. The, the desire to follow your heart, to do your dharma, your duty... Can, can sweetly cause a, a, a renunciation of pleasure and, and, and wealth, you see? So that's the first point we need to make here. Nachiketa is already at the state of moksha. Moksha is the final of the four goals. It's the goal most worth having. Why do we privilege moksha? Because moksha has the ability to trump and supersede all the other goals of life. Kama is trumped by artha. Artha is trumped by dharma. Dharma is trumped by moksha. In other words, pleasure is trumped. It's hard to say T's in the English and Sanskrit language. Pleasure is trumped by wealth and material accomplishment. Material accomplishment and pleasure is trumped by following your purpose. And all of that is trumped by the ultimate desire for liberation, for moksha, which is a desire that many of us might not even be able to articulate yet. You know, it's so fundamental, so deep, that even the best Freudian is going to miss it. <laughs> It's even higher than and starting that bakery that you wanted to. It's even higher than trying to be a musician. It's something deeper. It's where your desire for baking comes from. <laughs> mm. Okay. Thank you, Jared. The, your, your energy is so wonderful. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. Namaste, brother. All right. So now that we know this, these are the Purusharthas. You will see them in the law of Manu, an ancient text way back when, prescribing when in a person's life they should be interested in what so a person's life was divided into four phases in the first 20 or so years you were a uh, you know brahmachari you were just supposed to learn about stuff you go to school and you study and you live with your parents you live with your guru and then you know you're a celibate student and then you enter into your householder phase in life you know where you um make money and you have a partner and you have children and now you support society you know uh, your householder phase. Then you go into what we call the vanaprastha phase. You know, and that's when you leave your business to your children. You leave behind your vocation. And you and your partner, which is now your spiritual partner, go off into the forest to read spiritual books together. And then you and your partner eventually, and this is beautiful, split up. In the last stage of your life, you and your beloved 
happily part ways in order to find the solitude needed for liberation. You see. So in the beginning, you're interested in karma, then you're interested in artha, and then you're interested in dharma, and then you're interested in moksha. So why are you lot all here? That's another question. Aren't some of you 20? Shouldn't I only be speaking to 70-something-year-olds? If this is the way the law of Manu prescribes an ideal human life, why do you all... Well, I know, you're all actually 70, but you do a lot of hatha yoga, so you look 20. I get it. I see what's going on here. (laughs) Why are you here, though? And to answer that, we have to look to reincarnation a little bit, but we won't do that now. Just say this. Once a person is finished with karma, artha, and dharma, they become interested in moksha. This is where Nachiketa was. This young boy was decidedly done with karma, done with artha, and done with dharma. Here's how we know that. When offered all of these things, when offered up the world with all of its pleasures, like Jesus in the desert was similarly offered the world by Satan. You know, do you want to turn rock to bread, Artha? You know, do you want to, and look at what the devil promises Jesus. Do you want to turn rock to bread? You can feed lots of people. That's what I was trying to do in a, in a rock band, trying to turn rock to bread, trying to feed myself. But do you want to turn rock to bread? And not just that, Jesus was offered the ability to demonstrate his powers in front of everybody, which would help his dharma, right? Uh, but Jesus was like, nah, I want none of this, Lucy. I'm done with all that stuff. Similarly, Nachiketa looks to Yamaraj and says these following words and mark these words. They're perhaps the most significant words in our tradition. And they are the words that if properly contemplated can once and for all free you from worldliness, free you from the clutches of the world. And the words are as follows. Yamaraj, what you offer to me now is good, but ultimately these things wear out the senses. Do you see? Ultimately, these things are transient. They are good for a time, but they fail to scratch the fundamental itch. Nachiketa knew this. He knew that if he took the celestial dancing girls, he would wake up the next day with a hangover and a feeling of emptiness in his rock star heart. He knew if he took all the kingdoms and the suns, he would one day be looking out over the balcony at his empire, yawning into an infinity, and still feel dissatisfied. If that was not the case, why didn't Alexander stop? You see, study the life of any great conqueror, and you will realize very soon that the world is simply not enough. And if it didn't do it for Alexander, it's not going to do it for you, Chad, on Wall Street. I'm sorry, but... That yacht is not going to do it for you. But maybe you need to buy it only to realize that. (laughs) Maybe you need to do the Kama Sutra cover to cover before you realize it's not going to do it for you. So this emptiness is very beautiful. It's the start of spiritual life. Now, in the beginning, it's okay to want Kama. It's okay to want Artha. Why is it that you don't want those things as much anymore? Or at least, why is it that some other desire has a woken in you for something that is categorically different from karma and artha, different from dharma. That's because in previous lives, you've either become conquerors and decided, some of you might very well have been Alexander the Great. Chandragupta Maurya is probably sitting here somewhere. You know, I see Napoleon over there. (laughs) (laughs) But some of you very well were, became emperors, you know, and you finished with that. Some of you enjoyed pleasure to its fullest extent and you're finished with that. But granted, some of those patterns are still there in us. You know, from memories, from past lives, and even from this life, our patterns are still kind of 
goading us on with their momentum. So we know pleasure doesn't fulfill us, but we still reach for that bottle. We still, you know, uh, we know money doesn't satisfy us, but we still feel that restlessness when the bank account is dwindling. <laughs> Just old patterns, you know, old patterns replaying themselves. Anyway, Nachiketa said to Yamaraj, I don't want any of this. So Yamaraj finally, impressed that he could not be dissuaded, began to tell him the secret, which hopefully we will talk about today. Okay, so once Nachiketa learned the secret of life, he was happy forevermore. So the next point we must make is that all this ritual, all this philosophy, all this yogasana is so that you can be happy. Let's not forget that all of Indian philosophy has this one aim, you know, the complete fulfillment of life. It's not just a mental masturbation project. You're not learning this stuff so you can impress a Tinder date or get an A on a test. No one's grading you. Uh, you know, you're not doing any of this because you have to, because you have to uphold a tradition or something. No, you're doing this because it's your best shot at fulfillment. That's what we're all in it for, to be happy and to be happy together. You know, that's why we do it together. Mm. As Chris McCandles writes rather beautifully in his diary in that book, Into the Wild, happiness is only real when shared. And we'll see why in a little bit. Okay, so... Now we know there are differences with Kama, Artha, Dharma, and Moksha. Let's look at Dharma a little bit. What is Dharma and why is it better than Kama and Artha? And more importantly, how can you find your Dharma? You know, the word Dharma, and we had a talk on this. We did a talk just on Dharma. It was called Finding Your Purpose. This one's a little different. This one's called What is the Purpose of Life? A little more uh, metaphysical. Yes, Fabricio says, you have to go to Alaska, eat some poisoned herbs and die. Oh, peace and blessings be upon him. You know, Christmas candles. Alexander Supertramp. <laughs> and all those like him, all the sadhus of America. All right, so what is Dharma? And we won't go too much in depth here. Uh, because there was that other lecture, we'll just say this. Each of us is here to be something and do something and give something in the way that only each of us can give, be, and do. Do you see? Each of us is here with a specific drive to actualize a specific thing in this world. Um, and we don't really know why, but it cannot be dismissed that we feel that in the depths of our being. So uh, an example is I had a friend, he's in Palo Alto now, and his mother is an artist, you know, very beautiful painter, and he only grew up surrounded by that kind of thing. There were no computers or, or cell phones in his house. It was just a hippie house, you know, in San Francisco, hippie house surrounded by art, and his mother was kind of like the barefoot, walk around hippie kind of person. But for some reason, he had this interest in computers. So he would go to his school in San Francisco and go into the computer lab and just play around with computers. And eventually he taught himself how to code. He had no kind of environmental stimulus to do this. He just felt deep in his heart that learning to code would be a worthwhile thing to do. So he learned to code. And eventually, you know, he moved to Silicon Valley and now he does really interesting work in AI. And he's one of the best coders out there. He's on the very frontiers of um, AI research. But it's inexplicable how he came to want that for himself. My friend Noah is the kind of person um, for whom uh, coding would be great, even if there was no money in it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, he has turned down positions at incredible companies with incredible starting salaries because what he really wants to do is code the Patti Smith AI so he can write Patti Smith songs. 
he's a deep lover of culture and he wants to rescue all those, you know, uh, save the post- for posterity all these artists. So isn't that interesting? He just loves to code. Where did that come from? Obviously, his desire to code uh, led him to renounce pleasure and wealth in the name of his life's purpose. And not only that, it has created in him a spirit of service. So guess what he's doing when he's not coding? He's coding. <laughs> he codes as a hobby. And when he codes as a hobby, he makes public access um, codes for other people to use. So he just publishes them in this place where anybody can go and just, yeah, you know, copy and paste it into their own computers. Uh, yeah, it must have been Steve Jobs' past life. I don't know. I'm very interested in him because I'm sure my parents would have wanted that kind of Indian son. Not the Yogi Sadhu one, but the Google CEO one. Anyway, I'll be like, Mom, I found a nice Jewish boy. Uh, you know, maybe you could trade. <laughs> um, so my friend, he just loves doing this at the expense of pleasure and money, you know. And when he does make money, he gives it all away anyway. Why? Because he's so fulfilled. He's so fulfilled coding that... Money doesn't really fulfill him, so he gives it all away. Uh, pleasure doesn't really fulfill him because he's much more interested in coding, you know? Um, and when relationships come and go in his life, he's remarkably chill about it. You know, he's like, well, I'm in love with coding, you know? She won't leave me. <laughs> so Noah is very high being, you know, because he's coding. And the beauty of it is his coding eventually led him to Buddhism. So now he's a tremendously powerful Vipassana meditator, you know? Uh, one of the most committed meditators I know in this life. Uh, a true follower of the, the Buddha, Buddha Dharma, if ever there was one, you know. So isn't that interesting? Dharma took him to moksha, and it was his love for coding that eventually hinted to him the possibilities beyond that. But let's take a step back. Why is it that Noah wanted to code? And some of you already said it in the chat. It's probably because there was something in him driving him to do so. What was it? In our tradition, we call it a samskara, meaning a volition, or a tendency, or a proclivity. It's hard to translate exactly what a samskara, sorry, not samsara, that's something else. Samskara. Samskara is an aggregate of previous lives lived. It's a kind of wisdom that we inherit in our very cells. And remember, I might say I'm 20-something years old, but my body is 13.7 billion years old. You know, my cells are as old as this universe. In me and stored even in my gut is memory and wisdom that goes far beyond this mere body. That is why Jesus was able to say before Abraham was, I am. You know, he's not talking about Jesus, the body or, you know, Jesus, the personality. And I'm sure he was really great at parties, very pure and calm and, and devoted there's something about men of God and women of God and people of God that there's like a certain charisma to them. You know, Jesus must have been a hit playing Wonderwall at parties. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you too, Amanda. We all do, literally. Uh, and, and the twin serpents of Hermes Caduceus is forever coding these four names of the letters of God, if you will, yod He vav He, that modern science calls ACTG or whatever, you know? But there are these four letters in the world and, and they're being coded on every level. These Atsilutic, Briatic, Yetziratic, and Asiatic worlds, you know, for the Hebrew mystics in the room. Just wanted to throw something there for you. But you see, um, deep down in our cells, there is this understanding of what we're meant to do with this life. It's carried over from previous lives. So in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna asks Krishna, he says, Krishna, I, I love what you're teaching me. 
Um, I'm really interested in practicing yoga, uh, but I'm about to go to war, and in 10 minutes, I might actually die. You see, Arjuna had a real concern, like, in 10 minutes, he might no longer have the privilege of practicing yoga in this body and in this life. So having learned the secret of life from Krishna, it's a little bit ironic then to take that into the battlefield. Now he has something to lose. So very naturally, Arjuna asks Krishna, he says, what happens if I die? What will, what will become of all this yogic work? And Krishna says, relax. What is death but a changing of clothes? You will give up this body and take on one that is more suited for your current spiritual level. You see? So if you've spent your life delighting in pleasure, um, then you will take a body more suited to pleasure. Can you really eat your food with the delight that a wolf eats its meal? You know? You think you can enjoy pleasure, but look at how animals do it. Oh, if only you could orgasm like an animal. If only you could attack dinner like a dog. No, your body is not suited for material pleasures. Not like animals, at least. They have it good in that sense. And, and, and that's, it, pleasure's not bad. So if you're really interested in pleasure, you will take one of those bodies uh, because that will meet you where you are. You see, it's not like a punishment or anything. It's just to facilitate what you want, you know? So Krishna says, you will get a body befitting your stature. Do you remember that Rumi poem? Rumi says something like this, peace and blessings be upon him. He says, I died a rock and became a plant. I died a plant and became an animal. I died an animal and became this man. Uh, and when I die as this man, I will become an angel. When was I lessened by dying? <laughs> So Rumi is telling us, don't fear death because you'll just get what you built up to this point. So if you die having practiced a lot of yoga, rest assured, uh, one of three things might happen. Don't take my word for it. Look in your own memory. <laughs> one, you get a human body again. You might have fallen from the yogic path. You still have some, you know, entanglements with pleasure and wealth in the world. So you still need to come and work it out. But you will probably be born into a body which is fit for that kind of work by virtue of having wealthy parents. Take Swami Muktananda, for instance. Krishna Raj was born to a very wealthy family. A lot of these saints were born to families that had significant amount of money, which allowed them the leisure to, you know, go off and be sadhus. So um, very likely you might be born into Artha. You might be born into rich material circumstances, having already cultivated that virtue in a previous life. You might be born in a healthy young body capable of enjoying pleasure. Why? Because you've trumped pleasure with wealth. Now you're at Dharma, so naturally you get Artha and Kama too. It says it right there in the Bible, find God and these things will be added unto you as well. I know I'm veering into the slightly more mystical, linguistic kind of, you know, and, and this is just some guy saying some stuff. And please don't take my word for any of this. Don't believe a word I say. Uh, but here it is in the scripture, just putting it in front of you, do with it what you will, you know. But as we see in the Bible, as we see in the Bhagavad Gita, as we see in the Quran, many parts of uh, spiritual literature point us to this fact. When we die, we simply restart the video game from where we were. When we drop the body, we take on a body more suited to our ends. So Noah is a brilliant coder. Uh, because he's already developed it. So naturally, he was born in San Francisco, for crying out loud. You know, at the eve of the dot-com boom. He was made to be a multi-millionaire coder bro who has no interest in money or pleasure. You know, it was all there for him. 
Um, similarly, there's no accident that you are born in this yuga, uh, in, in this body, in this life to these parents. None of that is a coincidence. It's all karma, you know? Um, so the beauty, and, and, and so that's the first thing that can happen. You can be born into such a, such a, uh, life. Now, even better than that, um, or, or second, the second thing that can happen is because of a lot of merit, you know, associated with your life, you might take on a finer body and go and enjoy some time in celestial realms, known in our tradition as swargas. Uh, uh, um, what is it? Um, every tradition has some kind of word for it, like Valhalla or Elysium or, or something, you know, this place where you go in and hang out and have a beer with your forefathers and drink rivers of milk and honey. That's real. You know, Jimi Hendrix probably came to this world from having experienced one like that and was able to bring down the visions of that greater world. Many of your artists are from such worlds. Sevilla, yeah, all these beautiful um, uh, uh, traditions that know in their ancestral memory about these realms. And these realms are beautiful, you know, they're populated by the celestial musicians and nymphs that Nachiketa was offered. You know, if you thought life was good in this world, you know, wait till you take on an angelic body. But here's the thing. Even that pleasure is limited, as Nachiketa points out. Even Kama on a sophisticated level, even Artha on a sophisticated level, and even Dharma on a sophisticated level doesn't really do it for us. Because even that is transient. Less transient, certainly, but still transient. Okay, so the tradition... Generally, in our, in our tradition, we say once your merit runs out, once your storehouse of punya or, or spiritual merit runs out, you have to incarnate in this world anyway. <laughs> you know, this world is the bridge. You can't get out except through this world. You can't really do it in a swarga. You need a body and Randy's t-shirt. <laughs> you need a spine calibrated like that, as Randy is demonstrating. <laughs> You need the, the rod of Hermes. You need the staff of, sorry, sorry, the rod of Moses, the staff of uh, uh, Hermes. You know, Gandalf's stick. You need that spine, Jacob's ladder with 33, you know, your spine has 33 bones, Jacob's ladder has 33 bones. It's all there in the literature, you know, looking right at us. Uh, <laughs> nothing secret about it except for its poetic language, you know. So you do need this body and you need this spine. But can you imagine... What could be more favorable a birth than to be born in a healthy body um, with relative physical comfort? Many of you are, I'm speaking to you here in America, you know, wow, we live like princes here. The poverty we complain of in America is wealth beyond compare in many other parts of the world, <laughs> often. Now, um, it's funny because, uh, you know, sometimes being a sadhu in India, it's, it's easy. Everybody loves you. So they'll give you food and give you water. There's some places it's quite hard to be a sadhu. In America, um, being a sadhu, it can be hard. Sometimes they don't let you go into the bathroom. But when they do, the bathroom is really nice. It isn't just like squatting in the forest. You know, you get to go into Starbucks and like, oh, and everybody gives you water here. It's a nice place to be a sadhu, except in the winter. I don't know how you people do it <laughs> in the winter here. I don't want to be a sadhu in the winter in L.A. <laughs> Um, anyway, you see, to be born in a strong body, in relative physical comfort, material comfort, but also to encounter these teachings, you know, that is the sign of a truly high birth. The desire for liberation, the means for liberation in the body and in the world, and the access to liberation teachings. It is not to be taken lightly to meet a guru, to meet a text, to 
Find a spiritual tradition. And you know, as Jesus says in the book of Matthew, beware the brood of vipers. They say, Lord, Lord, yet they know me not. There are many people who live and die in a church having never encountered true religion. You know, there are many people who hear the names of God, but they're like ash upon the tongues of those who speak it. Those who profane the name of spirit by speaking from the stomach and claiming they are speaking from the heart. You know, so there are people who are born to religions who never taste religion. (laughs) And there are people who are born in atheist communist countries who encounter the true life force of spirit, that ever pure current that you can feel even now flowing in this room, in the salivation of your mouth, in the beads of perspiration on your brow, on the upper lip. Is this not the pure, clear, life-giving waters that flowed in the river Saraswati? that flowed in the Euphrates and Tigris, that flowed in the Nile that is here now flowing, you know, you can feel that. So, here we are. (laughs) A very fortuitous birth. Having come through Kama, having come through Artha, many of us are now ready for Dharma. So Rumi would say, do what sets your soul on fire. He was the original bumper sticker. (laughs) Do what excites you. So if you want to quit your job as a lawyer and become a mediator or a jazz trombone player, here's how spirituality can help you do that. One, it will teach you what you do want. So by meditating, by practicing yoga, by practicing pranayam, it will connect you with your deeper self. In other words, it will tear open your cultural programming, your conditioning that says it's wrong to be a jazz musician. It's wrong to be a a cobbler on the street. You must be a professional. You must make a certain amount of money. All of that continues to have power over you um, insofar as you have not connected with a different center of power. So when you start to meditate, you destabilize that conditioning because ultimately you destabilize the self around which that conditioning was built. So once your ego starts to loosen up a bit, once you connect with a different sense of who you are, um, you realize what you want. The ego wants money. The ego wants pleasure. The ego wants that. But then you meditate and realize, oh, there's another vector, another movement in me that is often at odds with what the ego wants. And and, and my parents, you know, like everybody will know, their parents can sometimes be the mouthpiece for the ego or the mouthpiece for the cultural conditioning because your parents, out of love, perhaps also a lot of fear, don't want you to be homeless, end up in jail, do drugs or die. You know, so they are also the mouthpiece for the survival obsession, the artha and kama obsession of our society. That's why Jesus says in no uncertain terms, he whosoever who loves father and mother more than me is not fit to follow me. (laughs) Do you see what Jesus is saying there is he whosoever loves the cultural conventions, your conditioning, your preconceived notions of who you are, whosoever loves that more than their inner voice cannot follow me. Meaning me, meaning the inner voice, you see? To follow the inner voice requires some level of, I love you, Ma, but I have to do this for myself. Sorry, no love lost. This might break your heart, but I'm moving to Benares for the next three years to become a monk. (laughs) Don't worry, your parents will come around. They always do. (laughs) Because they love you. It's just in that moment they're possessed by the cultural voice, you know? Uh, mom, I love you, uh, but this trailer's gotta go. <laughs> mom, I outfitted my van. It's now a live-in space. Mom, I'm moving onto a boat. 
No, imagine coming home one day bald in orange robes and be like, Mom, I'm not Nishant anymore. I'm Swami Atma Bodhananda. <laughs> she will beat you. Day, Karavale, she'll say and beat you. <laughs> Stop playing at Sadhu, she'll say. Anyway, um, you see, um, I did buy a van and it's my home now. Exactly, Shannon. And, and you see, we, we have the courage to do that when we start meditating, we start practicing spirituality because we liberate deep within us that wellspring or that reservoir of energy that comes from an entirely different place. And it's so enlivening, you know? Uh, before we drew our energy externally from validation of others, uh, we were playing the game, you know? And that was interesting, but it wasn't as valid as this other force. And, and, and in other places in the Bible, there are lines like, uh, uh, yeah, your parents want you to be happy, but don't expect you to attain its highest expression. Because maybe a lot of them don't know its highest expression. Hence today's talk, right? So we'll parent differently, those of us who are householders. Okay, so um, Jesus, uh, in other parts of the Bible, you get such statements as this. Wisdom with the world is foolishness with God. You see, to check the boxes of your parents and society ultimately neglects the soul's call. You know, um, to follow your parents at the expense of your own heart is wise by the world standards, but not by God's standards. You know, it makes sense to want to ascend the corporate ladder, to become a professional, to have a nice house in the suburbs. It makes sense. And in fact, you will be celebrated for making those choices. But those choices uh, betray your true essence. You know, you must be careful uh, because at every step of the way, the devil will hand you those various things in the desert. <laughs> Nachiketa will continuously be offered these uh, false uh, goods. You know, not all that glitters is gold. Not all who wander are lost. Token. So, right. <laughs> if we manage to get some Lord of the Rings and some Star Wars and some rock and roll in here somewhere, I'm happy. You know, <laughs> I always think if this talk is my last, you know, would I have been satisfied? And now I am. Start. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. All right. So, um, and, and elsewhere in the Bible, it says the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And here we are, the blood of the covenant, you know? <laughs> yeah, Claire brought some M&M. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, um... Nachiketa, Jesus, they're all answering their inner call, and that's the Dharma. The Dharma is duty, because you have a duty to that call, that voice, above all. The Dharma trumps pleasure, the Dharma trumps wealth, the Dharma is worth sacrificing everything for. And that's the setting of the Bhagavad Gita. You see, if Krishna was talking to a merchant, someone from whose dharma it was to trade, Krishna's advice would have been different. Krishna would not have said to the merchant, go and do war. You know, he wouldn't have handed him Sun Tzu's art of war. He would have handed him Napoleon Hill's think and grow rich. You know, Krishna would have said to the merchant, go and trade, you Vaisha. You know, if the Krishna was talking to the Shudra, the, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, someone who's interested in bodily pleasures and material labor and being in the body and physical, he would have said, you know, do some sport. I don't know. <laughs> Build a building. Be a carpenter. You know, like do your dharma. It just so happens that Krishna was talking to a man whose dharma it was to be a warrior. You see, Arjuna is not a kachatriya just by birth. He's a kachatriya by passion. You know, when he was learning from Drona, he really practiced archery until he was the best archer there was. How could anybody do that if he didn't love archery? You know, Arjuna loves to fight. 
He's like the big macho man. He's got his mace and he's got his Pashupati missile and he's got his, you know, and he's willing to do anything to, to, to be a good hero and to be that for his people. So you see, we often, uh, Dharma is often given a weird kind of rep here in the West because it's almost like, okay, you were born in this caste. That's what you have to do now. No, it, it your soul wants to do that. So you took a birth in a specific family in order to best meet your needs. Um, and it just so happened that Arjuna wanted to shoot arrows and win wars and defend his kingdom from evil. So Krishna spoke to Arjuna, you know, the Adonis, the uh, third chakra. Krishna was speaking to a warrior. Now, what's your dharma? What's your kurushetra? You know, are you a musician? Are you a, a poet? Are you a spiritual teacher? You know, uh, Anthony is a pranic healer. Roxanne is a dancer. You know, and, and, and what, what do you do? And Red hypnotizes people, among other things that Red does. You know, Like a public persona. Like what, what turns you on in life? Now, notice this. Pleasure is nice, but if you're just living a perpetual Friday or Saturday night or Sunday afternoon, sooner or later you get that like empty feeling. The moment the sweetness fades from the mouth or the pleasure disappears, there is a tremendous kind of, you know, you felt that when you don't know what your dharma is and you're just doing pleasure, it's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. Um, and you can get trapped in, yeah, the hangover and to solve the hangover, get the other drink. You're trapped in this pattern of pleasure uh, because you can't feel uh, what life is for beyond that. And it becomes very kind of frightening, especially when you get older, you know, when you're like age 90 and you're still chasing tail, there's a real desperation there. <laughs> um, yeah. And Teresa, we're going to talk about that too. It doesn't, you know, and, and uh, what if you're good at something and it's not your passion? So we're, we'll come to that. It's a good question. So yes, here we go. We have this kind of karma way to live. Then there's an artha way to live. But look at all those billionaires who are making a lot of money but aren't in their dharma. You see? They're not doing what they want to do even though what they do makes them a lot of money. So this might speak to your thing, Teresa. I make a pretty damn good tort lawyer. You know? I discovered in my early days that I could argue the hell out of a civil law case. You know? And I, I think this boy, Nish, might have done pretty well for himself helping big companies like Coca-Cola get out of lawsuits for people that get injured at their factories, you know? Pretty good at finding... I'm pretty good at reading, memorizing, and debating. <laughs> and for a while, this niche incarnation was like, uh, you know, like a debater guy. You know, I was going all over the world doing these international tournaments, and law firms were like, yeah, you're, here you go, here's an internship, here's a starting salary, all that stuff. Um, like Nachiketa being offered all these things, and that's what I was good at. But it isn't what I loved. What I loved was playing guitar, you know, and, and people would say to me, Nish, yeah, yeah, I think you have too much intellectual aptitude to play guitar. How offensive. First of all, I don't think so. But second of all, how can you use someone's intellect against them? You know, and, and I was taken aback. Uh, but you can see society makes these arguments for what would be wise. You're good at this. So do that. No, 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 no. None of that matters. Be a bumbling fool in love. You know, do what you love, even though you suck at it, you know. And to this day, I still suck at playing guitar, but I love it to death. And you do it, you know, you do it. You do what you love to do, um, even though you suck. And Steven Tyler has that autobiography, which I loved, called uh, Does the Noise in My Head Bother You? And in it, he says, dare to suck. And I love that motto, dare to suck. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yes. Dharma leads you to moksha, as you'll see in a bit. So, um, what it is that turns you on, when you find it, 
You know, you're willing to walk out of a million dollar company, even though you're good at that, even though it makes you money because it's empty. You're willing to leave behind pleasures that the money bought you, uh, pleasures that you've become accustomed to. What's that? I missed that. All right. Sorry. Say, say it again if you can. I missed it. I kind of talked over it. My bad. Yes. Um, so... You're willing to walk out of pleasure. You're willing to walk out of wealth because you found your dharma, you know? Now, compare what life is like when you're in your dharma. Does that mean that you don't enjoy pleasure? No, you still enjoy it. It's just not central to your life. Like, you'll enjoy a cup of delicious matcha every now and then, but it's not the point. It's an accessory to the crime, you know? There might come money and you might enjoy that money, but again, it's not the point. You know, your point is to wake up every day and practice scales or uh, cobble some shoes or read a book about business or I don't know what it is. But when you're doing that, there's a sense that your life has meaning. It has direction. You're going somewhere. And every day um, when you fail at what you want to do, there's some joy in that because at least you're doing the damn thing, you know. <laughs> Another anecdote. There was one time, uh, you know, like, no, no, no. So there are these times, you know, when you just feel like a story is not important, but you feel like you hit the absolute rock bottom and it's good. You're like, yeah, there's a kind of and, and sometimes it's like a sadism or a masochism, but it's not that it's just a feeling of at least I'm doing it. I'm doing the hell out of it. You know? Yeah, man, exactly. Um, and Alex, good question. Good question about Yudhishthira. Really good question. What about Rama? You know? Rama, who uh, wanted to be with his wife, Sita, but his dharma was to be a king. So he did that. Now, Yudhishthira is a very interesting case, actually. Uh, and we'll, we will do a Bhagavad Gita and Mahabharata course. In fact, it would have to be a retreat. I intend to show you the, uh, that movie, you know, that nine-hour movie. And uh, we'll do a retreat. We'll take an Airbnb and we'll just watch the hell out of that movie and unpack each scene. And that's worth doing, but definitely not for a Monday night sangha. Oh, man. Oh, oh no. All right. Well, we'll figure that out, man, somehow. I've missed you. It's good to have you back. But uh, yeah, so you see, um, Yudhishthira, Rama, sometimes, and this is the thing about your Dharma, sometimes it's not always going to be what the ego wants to do. Do you see? It's what you want to do. But once you decide that, you're very quickly going to feel some resistance. So the first thing that I'd like to to offer today is this text uh, by Stephen Pressfield and it's called The War of Art. And it's, in, it, it's very important that someone who is living the Dharma is acquainted with this text because Stephen Pressfield is an American author who has touched upon something very powerful. He identifies something that he calls resistance. And he identifies that when an artist decides to be an artist, she is confronted at every step of the way with excuses not to do what she wants to do. Have you noticed writers? They'll talk about being writers, they'll never write. Have you noticed painters who identify as painters who probably lived in the uh, arts district downtown in some shitty apartment, but don't ever paint? They start a little bit and then, you know, they get kind of dissuaded. Because once you decide to do what it is that you came here to do, everybody freaks out. Not only your parents, not only society, but other forces. There are other forces. Uh, I won't speak of them too much because it's not important, really. They're deep psychic forces that are tasked with maintaining the illusion, with maintaining the, the matrix, if you will. There are the agent smiths of the psyche. The dragon does not take lightly to you poking around in its treasure. <laughs> it's going to growl. 
it's going to breathe smoke. And that smoke will come in the form of, I really should be writing, but wouldn't it be more healthy to sleep tonight? I could use an extra hour of sleep, right? I'll be healthy and tomorrow I'll write, right? Or maybe I should go out and get some lunch with that friend who I've been blowing off for so many days. You know, I know I should be writing, but maybe this would be an important networking opportunity for me. We can always use allies, right? In the world of literature, right? <laughs> I should be writing, but maybe I should just finish this one more chapter. <gasps> you know what I'll do? I'll go to a workshop. Yeah. I, I don't need to write if I'm busy learning how to write. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah, it's also common, you know, we all feel this. Every art- artist on the path realizes they never want to do their art because it's, it's not your fault. There are forces far older um, than the ego, than your, you know, like strong forces that do not take lightly to you trying to escape the wonderful prison that they've built. They put a lot of time into this, you know, the kings of Edom. And now, now you've realized the doors are unlocked. There's nothing they can do to lock the doors, right? You've realized the doors are unlocked. You're walking out. <sighs> they will not take kindly to that. Can you imagine how they feel? You can have some sympathy for them too. Lord, thou seest what Azazel has done. <laughs> but forgive them, Father. You know, they know not what they do. So, here we are. Um, Anthony, billionaires who failed to find moksha fixed their gaze on outer space. <laughs> Is that their Star Trekma? <laughs> Yeah, Pooja, later, after the conversation, we'll have the, those mystical talks. Not important, really, for our purposes here. We're talking about liberation, so I rein in the horses of mysticism so we don't get sidetracked. But yeah, um, you'll feel this in your life as a desire not to do your dharma. And, and that, my friends, is such a beautiful fight to fight. The Arjuna fight. Do your dharma. That is perhaps one of the best ways to live your life. But it's not enough, as we're now about to discover. It's good, though. It's the best, because it's the way you get to moksha. You can't really get to moksha without dharma, you know? Yeah, <laughs> take care, Mads. Time to go pop the rivets. I'm happy you came by a little bit. Mads is Jesus, you know, carpenting. <laughs> Farewell, Mads. Doing the work. Like, Shams used to build houses. That's why the masons, you know? Something about craft connects you to spirit in a way, very nicely. Um, yeah, so, and then funnily enough, your dharma probably involves some kind of creative output like that. Playing guitar, typing on the keyboard, or shuffle, something. Yeah, exactly, Matt. It's like Shams of Tabriz, you know, building houses. They didn't need yoga, by the way. The Sufis didn't really need yoga, because they were building houses. And when they weren't building houses and doing hard manual work, they were dancing elegantly like flowers. You know, that's yoga. You don't need all this down dog, headstand, all that. <laughs> that's just what we do. So um, here's the thing. Once you do your dharma, you will feel like your life has meaning. You know, if you commit yourself fully to the dharma, you will have a real fight. You know, it will be the fight against that force that keeps you from your dharma. That's why Yudhishthira and Rama resisted those things. You know, they stayed with their dharma. In a way, you have to bind yourself to the dharma. You have to burn the ships behind you. You have to handcuff yourself to your passion. You have to say, this is what I came to the world to do. I know it. I felt it in the core of my being. And there's no one that can tell you what it is. You know. You know, maybe you don't want to know because it's scary to know. But you know. You know what you're here for. Do it. And when you do it, there will be a lot to engage you. Uh, trying to get good at it first, learning the skills, and then overcoming resistance, and then learning how to navigate the world, uh, you know, like the music industry or whatever it is, and learning to, all of that will occupy you, but it will be very fulfilling. 
It'll be very great. And the beauty of it is where you end up is very different from where you thought you would be. Because somehow the journey uh, journeys itself. Once you give yourself to the Dharma, life lives you. You are no longer living your life because you are living for love. The lover lives a life of submission to love. You know, I love writing so much that I won't sleep. Or I love this, this music that I just will stay up and play. You see, love is a kind of bondage. And how sweet that bondage. You prefer that bondage a thousand times over the freedom of sensory gratification. You know, the freedom of a Sunday afternoon is a prison house compared to the bondage of love. <laughs> so when you find something you love, chain yourself to that, do it. That's dharma, you know. But the beauty is, because you are learning to live for love, because you are learning to sacrifice the world for your task in the world, you are being prepared for the real purpose of life. The real purpose of life is moksha. And it is um, the penultimate goal of a human existence. You will hear it in every kind of spiritual literature. In the Christian mystical literature, it you know, draws from the Aristotelian Greek literature. In Aristotle, the highest goal of the featherless biped is contemplation. Nothing short of contemplation can make you happy. That is, you might think of this as learning, but not quite. Learning, yes, learning is good. You know, following your dharma will bring you into contact with much learning. You'll need to learn. But it's slightly different. It's contemplating. It's uh, immersing yourself in the sacred, in the divine. So Aristotle said contemplation is the highest good. In the Christian mystical tradition, contemplating God is the highest good. Now let's turn to what Nachiketa was told is the highest good. It's the same as in the Christian tradition and in the Greek tradition. So what we consider salvation, eudaimonia, the kingdom of heaven, um, gnosis, all of that, we're talking about that now. It's the exact same thing. So what is Nachiketa told? He's told this. The purpose of life is moksha. Moksha is the understanding that you are not the body, nor are you the mind. Uh, you are awareness. In other words, moksha is when you take a stand permanently in awareness. Moksha is when you identify more with the subject than with the object of every experience. It's not some esoteric thing. <laughs> but it's actually also the most esoteric thing. It's so simple that it's mysterious, right? Moksha is nothing more than relaxing into what you already are. It's the simple ease of being that comes from recognizing you are not the body, you are not the mind, the world is uh, in you, you are not in the world. It's meeting God. And what happens when you meet God? Thou canst not live, <laughs> if you look at God, you know. So you get this in the highest spiritual literature, with, which granted, not many of us are ready for. You know, because in the highest spiritual literature, if you give it to a beginner, it will be interpreted as a life negating philosophy. You know, it will be interpreted as a kind of like, I hate myself, I hate the world kind of philosophy. No, 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 no. That's not at all what we want. We want to speak to those people who already having tasted all there is to taste in the world are now tuned into something a little more. And to those people, what does Jesus say? He says, deny thyself. Self-abnegation. You know, sit in the lowliest of places. Jesus says to these people, lose thy life that you may find it. He who loses his life will surely find it. 
and he who finds his life has lost it. <laughs> there is only one skill that impresses God, and it's dying. And before we close this lecture, uh, we will try to convey that. Hopefully, we can all die together with three arguments, okay? We'll do my, my, our favorite arguments. Uh, and we'll die together, right? So, what is better than that? And, and can you imagine how inane that is? To say, oh, you came into this life to die. You know, I was reading Kabir Helminski, a Sufi, and he said something very beautiful. He said, you know, you might ask, God's love, how cruel is God? You know, he kills the innocent. And you know what God might say back if you asked her, if you said, hey, hey God, why do you kill the innocent? Why does your love cause that? And God says, you've understood me perfectly. My love only kills the innocent. <laughs> because that's the goal. You suffer so you can die before you die. All the suffering in your life is grace. Every time you have suffered, it's God's grace. It's God's grace in that it shows you what you're not. Suffering is merely the experience of life identifying with that which you are not. Suffering is a very important feedback mechanism to show you that. Suffering moves you away from false identification, from the objects of experience to the subject. Suffering in that sense is grace, you know, because what you suffer prepares you for something way better than what you lost in that suffering, you see. God will burn your house down. And that's God's love to us, you know. Um, that's the Islamic way of saying it. And the beauty, the beauty of the Islamic tradition is they say, God, it presents itself in the world in two ways. One as stringency or rigor and the other as mercy. Look at the tarot card, the high priestess, you know, Bohaz and Yaqin, you know, the two poles, black and white. But ultimately, it's just mercy <laughs> because stringency leads to mercy, you know. Uh, and Rumi is perhaps the greatest voice for this. He sings, the fruit is juicy when you peel the rind. <laughs> and here's another Sufi story. Uh, there was a famous king, by the way, the kings and the sultans in Sufi stories, it's God. Okay, so there's a king, there's a famous king, um, and he's, disp not always, sometimes the caliph is like the bad guy, but most of the time when Sufis say the sultan, they mean the only king there is, right? Al-Malik. So anyway, the king, he's uh, known to hand out gold coins to people. That's his thing. He goes out and he hands out gold coins to specific people, uh, to widows, to uh, um, sick people, to uh, poor people, and to students, you know. So they all go and they collect their money, but the king doesn't like whiners. So once a student went and he grumbled and he whined a little bit, so the king decided not to give him any coins. The next day, this student, enraged, decided to dress up like a widow and go and beg for the coins. He was quiet, dressed up like a widow. The king recognized him and didn't give him the coin. The next day, he dressed as a sick person, hobbling in rags. The king recognized him and didn't give him the coin. The fourth day, he came as an orphan. Third day, he came as an orphan. Um, small, king didn't give him. He took all these shapes and the king didn't give him the coin. So he had one more trick up his sleeve. One day, he put a death shroud over him and he lay immobile by the side of the street. The king walked by and saw the corpse and flicked a gold coin on top of it, as was the custom, you know, to pay the ferryman or whatever. Soon as the gold coin landed on the floor, off came the death shroud. The boy clutched the coin and he said, Aha! You see how at last I've managed to snatch your treasure from you? The king smiled coyly and said, Yes, but not before you died. <laughs> 
Yes, so you must learn to die. Nothing else impresses the divine. So, um, I will read you, uh, the, the, sorry, I will say to you now the three arguments that hopefully can cause that death in you. And, and remember, it's an insight. It's an insight. It's one moment of recognizing what we're trying to show here. Once you see it, uh, in a way you can't unsee it, you know, and then that seeing just becomes deeper and deeper. Now, I know we'll do a little drum roll, but before I do, I do want to grab uh, the Rumi poem because it's a long one and I forgot it. So I'm going to grab it. Okay, I'll be right back. I'm back. It's <laughs> He's not far, the Rumi. He just happened to be there and not here. Cause... Okay, so um, I'll read you this Rumi poem. <laughs> I'll read you this poem. Um, and it might seem a little weird at first. In it, you will hear the Christ. In it, you will hear every mystic who ever lived. In it, you will hear all the world renunciation language of our... South Asian philosophy. Um, and when we read the poem, then we'll go into the arguments and hopefully the poems will make sense. So let's just say you've done with karma, you know, karma, you've experienced karma, you've enjoyed your pleasures, you, you, you realize it's not really all there. Then you do artha and you're kind of done with that. Then you do dharma and eventually, and this is inevitable, if you are doing dharma, you will become spiritual because your connection to your life's purpose is a connection to the source of life itself, the unstinting fountainhead, and that will draw you into spiritual practice. Just look at Kanye. <laughs> Jesus is king, right? That record. Look at Kendrick. I don't know. There's so many examples of people who through their art have become profound spiritual teachers. Rupert Spira, who is a potter, you know. Mm. Now, here's the poem. And it goes as follows. It's called, Empty the Glass of Your Desire. Join yourself to friends and know the joy of the soul. Enter the neighborhood of ruin with those who drink to the dregs. Empty the glass of your desire so that you won't be disgraced. Stop looking for something out there and begin seeing within. Open your arms if you want an embrace. Break the earthen idols, Kama Artha Dharma, and release the radiance. Why get involved with a hag like this world? You know what it will cost. <laughs> and three pitiful meals a day is all that weapons and violence can earn. At night when the beloved comes, will you be nodding on opium? If you close your mouth to food, you can know a sweeter taste. Our host is no tyrant. We gather in a circle. Huh? Sit down with us beyond the wheel of time. <laughs> Here is the deal. Give one life and receive a hundred. Stop growling like dogs and know the shepherd's care. You keep complaining about others and all that they owe you? Well, forget about them. Just be in his presence. When the earth is this wide, why are you asleep in a prison? Think of nothing but the source of thought. Feed the soul, let the body fast. Avoid knotted ideas. Untie yourself in a higher world. Limit your talk for the sake of timeless communion. Abandon life, abandon the world, and find the life of the world. <laughs> Do you see? Yeah, one of the ghazals. Now, it's, it, you can feel in this moment, 
if you think of any of the saints that you love, like Saint Charbel, for instance, uh, we might feel his presence here and his purity, his asceticism, that feeling of here is someone who moves through life like the wind whispers across the meadow, fragrant, joyful, but unattached. Can you imagine how the master must have walked? And by the master, I mean the Buddha, the Christ, the Christs and the Buddhas of the world. I mean Saint Charbel, I mean Rumi. Can you imagine how soft their steps must have been? How light the pitter-patter of their feet? They probably wore loose linens. I don't know, they wore all sorts of things. I'm sure there's someone in a tight latex leather suit right now in New York with a whip who is a master, you know. Uh, But uh, imagine how light their clothes must have been, how it whispered about their ankles. Imagine their profound silence. And imagine looking into that darkness, that those two eyes, you know, whatever color the irises must have been. Imagine looking into those eyes and seeing the Empyrean. You know, imagine looking into the eyes of the Christ or Rumi. Imagine recognizing there something otherworldly, yet so profoundly ordinary. You see, we resonate with these figures because they are more us than we are us. You know, the the Christs of the world are you. They just stop pretending to be other than that. You know, so here we are seated together, the Christ pretending to be unenlightened. You know, I was reading to you the Kabir Helminski um, translation from this pocket roomie, and it's from page 97. You see, I couldn't tell you where that poem is from. It's not from the Matanawi. Um, remember, Rumi never wrote anything down, yes? He simply wandered the streets of Konya spitting bars. <laughs> he was a freestyle rapper, backseat freestyle, you know? <laughs> he was just walking around spitting bars, and his student or friend, Husham, used to record all these poems. And they were compiled in these great poems like the Mathnawi and the Gazelles and, and you know, all of that. Uh, but he never attributed any of that poetry to him. He always, you know, when he did sign off on books, it was Shams, Shams of Tabriz, which was his guru, you know. Uh, so he never took any credit. Even the Christ, I can of my own self do nothing. You know, yeah, Rumi. Rumi is on Venice Beach. Can you imagine handing you his mixtape? It's it's a funny joke, right? If we lived with the Christ, would we even recognize him slash her? Do we don't hand twenties to, to to beggars anymore? We don't have a love for the homeless and the sadhus as we do in India. Without this love for your homeless, will you even meet Jesus if he's standing outside of Whole Foods saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Will you not dispense him as another crazy? <laughs> and he might. You know what? They maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I have gotten into some trouble <laughs> with some of the uh, uh, LA sadhus, you know. But maybe that's exactly what Jesus would, would do. Now, um, the Rumis and Jesuses of the world, would we even recognize them? That's the thing to remember. So just imagine the lightness with which they walked through the world. Now, here's what can happen. Once you've gone past Kama and Artha, often there's no desire for those things. How rich was Rumi? <laughs> He owned the world, yet he owned nothing in the world, you see. What kind of kingdom did Jesus run? Well, he slept with the dogs in the manger. You know, he slept in fields of lavender, wearing nothing but a piece of linen, yet the king of the world. You know, see, these people are so absorbed in some kind of pleasure that they care not at all for any of the pleasure in the world. You couldn't get them to, like, engage in, like, sexual gratification. Uh, But then there are also some who teach in that way. (laughs) You know, Uh, great tantric masters who do. But if you think about the Christ, think about the saints that we love, such purity, such otherworldly etherealness, such lightness. That is one who walks in moksha. 
you know. One who walks in dharma has like a rajasic temperament, a lot of charisma, a lot of fire. But one who walks in moksha has sattva, pure sattva. So one way to think about this journey, for those of you who are yogic philosophers, Sankhyans, um, and if you're not, don't worry, these words, just let them go over your head, but there are energetic flavors in the world, right? Kama and Artha is very tamasic. Kama is very tamas. Kama is almost entirely tamas, right? And rajasic, ta- ta- uh, tamas and rajas. When you get to Artha, it's a little more rajas, but still a lot of tamas. Uh, when you get to Dharma, it's a lot of rajas, but also sattva. It's in dharma that sattva is introduced. And in moksha, just sattva. You're kind of purging away rajas. You're purging away tamas. You're just kind of cultivating sattva. Yes? So imagine how sattvic these saints must have been. Rumi and Jesus and the Buddha. You know, you see, we don't really, and I'm not bashing anybody here, okay? Like, with love in my heart, we don't really talk about Drungpa Kinle. Love to him, right? And that was the Tibetan master who drank a lot of beer and like had a lot of sex, you know. And he was one of those kind of teachers, like a holy madness kind of teacher who thought through like that kind of way. But (laughs) you see what I mean? Like, you know, um, those teachers, uh, they might have been powerful teachers, but are perhaps still idiosyncratic and and maybe still not yet addressing to us something deeper that the Christ does or that, that Rumi does, you know. Okay, so there's a kind of purity at that level. How do we achieve that purity? And it's not a matter of achieving it because that's what you really are. How do we relax into that purity? In other words, how do we give up the world? How do we deny thyself, reject the world? Um, And the answer is twofold. One, through the path of bhakti, right? So last week we just talked about bhakti. Bhakti can do it for you. In a very sweet way, bhakti can do it for you. Now I'll take a a little bit more of a jnana tone with you and give you three arguments to create this kind of death, at least on an intellectual level, you know? And then hopefully when we end the lecture in about, uh, you know, 20-ish minutes, we can um, uh, debate and have an open floor and, and kind of, you know, do the jnana thing, right? Okay. So here are the arguments to feel into the Rumi poem. These arguments deny oneself. The first argument is uh, from the Taitriya Upanishad, and it's an argument on change, or, or from the observation of change. So let's follow this argument. It's very simple. The fundamental premise is this. If you notice change in something, it is because you are not it. In other words, you must stand apart from change in order to notice change is occurring. So let's demonstrate this. If you were a particle of water in a river, you wouldn't feel the river was moving. It's only from the perspective of the riverbank that the river moves. Now, in Newtonian mechanics, we know that the laws of physics in a moving train that's moving at uniform motion is the same laws as in the inert platform. What that means is movement is relative, as Einstein would later you know, expound. It's equally true to say, from a Newtonian point of view, that the train is still and the world is moving, you know? But why do we say the, wo- the train is moving and the world is still? Because we're on the platform, you know? It's only from the platform that we can meaningfully observe and claim change. Now, the world is spinning. Do you feel it? No, because you're in it. I mean, your, your body is in it. You are not in the world, as you'll soon discover. But your body is in it. So if you were to go on a rocket ship, you know, 
take Elon Musk's ride and go out there, uh, <laughs> as Anthony just joked, you'll see the world moving on its own orbit and around. And if you went a little further, you would see the galaxy around the supercluster, all of that, right? So it seems like this is the unavoidable conclusion. If you are noticing change, it is because you are not it. You know, you are standing apart from it. Now, does the body change? Most certainly it does. From childhood to adolescence to mature adulthood to old age, the body is nothing but a river of change. How do you know? Because you are not the body. There's no other way. There's no other way you can identify change in the body except if you were standing apart from the body as one stands apart from the train, as one stands apart from the river. Now, let's say a train was empty. This example might be a little dark if there were people in the train. <laughs> no, it's not the trolley problem, okay? Let's say the train was empty um, and you were standing on the platform and you watched the train careening down, crashing into a rock and exploding in a fiery inferno. Don't worry, nobody was harmed. Would you really, and, and you didn't pay for the train, you know? <laughs> Would you really be that bothered? You might be startled, like, ah, you know? But you're standing on the platform. Ultimately, what does the explosion of the train have to do with you? You see, how about applying that to the body? What does the death of this, you know, bone, sinew, muscle, blood, what does that really have to do with you? You who are the one that is standing apart from the river of change known as the body. You are no more the body than the person on the platform is in the train. Then the river bank is the river. You see, that's the, the conclusion here. And if you were able to feel into that conclusion, if you were able to remember it in your times of physical pain and sickness and eventual death, notice what happens. You create a little space between you and the conditioning that says you are this body, so you must have pain. Oh, I mean, pain is inevitable in the body, uh, but suffering is totally optional. So this is how we free you from suffering in the body. You know, the Buddha was once asked, and the Buddha said, I have found a solution to old age, sickness, and death. So the Buddha was asked a very powerful question by a monk. Mr. Buddha, you know, Guruji, you said you would free us from old age, suffering, and death. Why is that uh, brother monk coughing? Why is that other monk getting old? Why did we just burn a few brothers yesterday? Surely even monks who follow your path, who are on the Dharma, are getting sick, are getting old, are dying. You haven't fulfilled your promise. I want my money back. Swami Sarva Prayananda made that joke. I thought it was great. In one of his talks, he was like, I want my money back. <laughs> That's what we might say to the Buddha now. Not my joke, Sarva Prayananda. So, um, uh, you see, the Buddha said something beautiful. He said, in life, there are two arrows. The first is the arrow of old age, sickness, and death. The second is the arrow of suffering. I can do nothing about the first arrow. Those are the laws of karma. That's samsara. I address the second arrow. I show you a way out of samsara. Nirvana is the way out of samsara. You have just been shown it. This is the argument. This is it. That's it. Once you can recognize that truly, because the body changes, and because you are the one who is observing the change, you therefore cannot be the body. You must contemplate this all the time. You must contemplate this in your times of suffering especially, but all the time. Why? Because for 25 years, this boy has been told that he is this body. You know, everything in this boy's culture tells him that. He's told to buy certain shampoo because this is his body and his hair and, and he's supposed to be attached to it. I, it's nice, I know. And that's the problem. <laughs> but you see, um, how to counter those 25 years of conditioning? 
Well, you must devote yourself daily to contemplating this idea. We can go one step further. You say, okay, I'm not the body, I'm the mind, right? I'm the mind perceiving the body. Yes, but doesn't the mind also change? Yes, with a better conditioner. <laughs> Claire, you know, they say, uh, uh, wh why does Pavlov's dog's fur smell so good? Answer, good conditioning. <laughs> so yes, better condition. <laughs> Claire, beautiful. So um, you see, we can do this with the mind too. Doesn't the mind also change? The body is changing, surely. But the mind, the mind that perceives the body, that too is a river of change. In fact, it changes even more radically than the body. Now remember, in the... <laughs> good Shampuja. <laughs> Shampuja. <laughs> That's so funny. Shampoo worship. Yeah, uh, Anthony, let's you and I start a hairdresser. It'll be like an ashram, but we wash people's hair. And we do like Reiki and we chant over the hair. I think you have an Artha idea there, you know? Call it a shampooja or something. People will come and line up for those high-grade vibration. And they walk out with nice hair too, which is always a plus. <laughs> okay, there's the idea. Someone in the Sangha, go and do it, okay? <laughs> go and make money that way if you still desire the money. <laughs> it's not difficult to make. Conditioned originations. <laughs> Okay, yes, we digress. All right. So, see, the body is changing. Uh, and, and by the way, in the Taittiriya Upanishad, we go from the body to the prana. The uh, Anamaya Kosha, we go from that to the Pranamaya Kosha, and from that to the Manamaya Kosha. We won't, I won't really do that today. It's enough to say body and mind. Let's just say that. Physical body, subtle body, right? Physical body, Stula Sharira, the, that we know is changing. But look at your Sukshma Sharira, your subtle body, your body of thoughts, your body of emotions. That too is constantly changing, yes? That means because you notice it's changing, you're not it. How could you be it, you know? You are noticing that it's changing. And what is this personality niche if not thoughts? The personality niche changes all the time. So I must not be it. Once I feel that, once I know I'm not my personality, what is praise or blame to me? Once I know that I am not the mind, what is grief, loss? What is even joy, excitement? Once I know I'm not the body, what is pleasure, pain? You know, what is any of that? It's got nothing to do with me. So you might be concerned, <gasps> giving up pleasure in the body, giving up joy in the mind, giving up satisfaction in the personality. Why would I want to do any of that? Ah, Because what we have is slightly better, <laughs> slightly more fulfilling, infinitely more fulfilling. Once you are able to give up the body, once you are able to give up the mind, there is a freedom and a joy that makes everything else that we have experienced on the level of the body and mind seem like child's play. Sadhguru said it nicely, you know, uh, he said, it. he said, uh, um, yogis aren't against pleasure, we're just against cheap thrills or something like that, transient pleasure. So before you think we are world renouncers, we're not. We're just trading shards of glass for diamonds. Now, it's funny, there's another story. Uh, a businessman came to a sadhu in India and he fell to the, the saint, he fell to the saint's feet and said, I have so much respect for you, Baba, Father, I have so much respect for you. You know, you've given up the whole world for God. And you know what the Baba did, the Sadhu? He got up, astounded, and he fell to his face in front of the businessman and touched the businessman's feet and said, no, 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 it is I who must respect you. Of the two of us, you made the bigger sacrifice. Of the two of us, you are the martyr, you know? Because I traded a few shards of glass for the real diamond. You live for the shards of glass. Tell me who is greater. Tell me whose life is more difficult. You are surely more worthy of respect. <laughs> 
You see, so you must respect the people who are caught in samsara. It's much harder to do that. <laughs> much more painful to do that. We, we, that's why we sit in the lowliest place. Because once you are free from suffering, you have a great respect for those who do suffer. Great respect. It's hard. And they're doing it. And they're doing it with gusto. You know, God bless the samsarans. God bless the worldlings. <laughs> anyway, so here we are. Uh, once you discover you're not the body, once you discover the not the, mi- not the mind, you can be free. And then you can sing this song with actual conviction. Ah, sangoham, sangoham, puna, puna, sangoham. Unattached am I. I am unattached. Again and again I sing this song. I am unattached. Such sweetness, such freedom. You can sing, Atmanam Chedvijaniyat, Ayamasmiti Purushaha, Kimichan Kasya Kamaya, Shariram Manusangjvareth. Recognizing myself as this one, as this Atman, for whose sake and desiring what should I suffer along with the fever of the body? You know, what freedom is there? What sweetness? So that's the first argument. Okay, we'll blitz through the second and then the third. Because there's actually one more argument that's more important. What we've done so far is, is Sankhya. It's not yet Advaita Vedanta. It's Sankhya. You've done a lot. You've distinguished yourself from the body and the mind. There's one more thing left. Now, the next argument is again Sankhya. It's one of my favorites. It comes from the Mandukya Upanishad, but most specifically the Mandukya Karika, which is a basha or a commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad by the saint Gaurapada. Uh, so this is the argument. And you've, I'm sorry if you've heard this like for the 20 millionth time, you know, uh, but we do need to repeat it over and over until it becomes realization. So here's the next argument. You experience categorically three states of consciousness. Consciousness. Someone asked me, you know, Nish, aren't you tired of this, uh, this argument? You do it all the time, you know. And no, I'm not tired. <laughs> not even a little bit. I love it now as I've loved it the first time it liberated. You know, I loved it forever. It's, ugh, it's the keys to the kingdom. So here's the argument. You experience categorically three states of consciousness. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. We take each state as real when we're in it. So when in the waking life, we take the waking world to be real. When in the dreaming life, you take the dream world to be real. In waking, you're not conscious of dreaming. And in dreaming, you're not conscious of waking. This is important to remember. Everything you consider to be real will stop being real tonight. In fact, for some of us in a few hours, (laughs) it will stop. Like all your problems will stop in an hour if you can get to sleep, you know? Isn't that exciting to hear? Like all that's so big deal right now in two hours will stop being a big deal. Do you know why? Because there will be some other things that you're worried about, like the lion that's chasing you, or the axe murderer in the dream, or the debt that you have in the dream. Now, even better, when you wake up from the dream, all the problems that were so real to you in the dream are no longer that real to you when you wake up. You're like, aha, I was never in the dream. The dream was in me, you know? Um, Ah, light came on, enlightenment. So this should help you relax. At, at the very least, this should allow you to... Ah, because everything you think is serious now is not. You know? Because that's what you thought when you were in your dream, right? So from your own experience, you know that you were wrong before. So you're probably wrong now about the things that you're taking seriously. Not just that. Look at your waking life experience. Remember that heartbreak, that grief. What is it to you now? I mean, occasionally you might still feel a little poignancy. But, you know, the person you wept tears for bitterly only a couple of years ago, you've totally forgotten. 
Swami Vivekananda says very funnily, the old lover is forgotten when you have the new lover. <laughs> you know, all the heartbreak and weeping, it's all gone. You're, you're here now, you know. Mm. What are memories if not dreams? Everything you consider to have happened to you, does it not feel like a dream? Your childhood, your adolescence. Some of you are still in adolescence. <laughs> um, you know, like, does it all feel like a dream? Yes. Even, wait, this afternoon, you know, just picture lunch. What you had, who you were with. Uh, remember eating. If you did today, it's a fast day in, in India, Monday. But imagine if you were eating, if you were. Um, does it all feel like a dream? So given that memories feel like a dream, and given that dreams are dreams, how can we privilege one over the other? Uh, by, but by that argument, we can't observe change. Interesting. Uh, you can, right? Because you can observe the change of the states of consciousness. That's the change we're interested in here. The change from waking to dream and ultimately from dreaming to deep sleep. It's still noticing change. You know, you're noticing that waking changes to deep sleep, deep sleep changes to dream, dream sleep changes to waking. You see? It's that order of change that we're interested in. Now, um, let's say you were only in the moment. Uh, true, true. Uh, and that's important. You can in, and, and that's why it didn't happen, Claire. You know, remember the, remember the goal of this argument is to show you that nothing happened, nothing will happen, nothing is happening now. Because you can never prove it. But on the, on, on this level of the argument, uh, we're appealing to our experience. While we cannot prove it, we have an experience of the past. We all of us experience memory. Not only that, we all of us experience dreams. Uh, unless you've been smoking a little too much of that herb, you know. But we all experience um, waking up from one and going into the other. That's what this argument is appealing to. Our experience of that change. So it cannot be denied that we are changing states of consciousness. Amanda says, I didn't eat that chocolate cake. <laughs> Whose hips, Amanda? Whose body is this? <laughs> I don't know. It's just a river. <laughs> okay, wait. So uh, uh, here's, the, here's the takeaway. Deep sleep. What about that? In waking, you took waking life to be real. In dreaming, you took dreaming life to be real. But in deep sleep, there, <laughs> there was an absence of the waking self and the dreaming self. There was no self in deep sleep. So how is it that when you woke up in the morning, you were able to think to yourself, I slept deeply. I had a dreamless night's sleep. Who is that I? It was not, I don't know, it wasn't Zethi or Haley, right? That's a waking state phenomena. Uh, when Nish goes to sleep, he'll be Jimmy Page, right? And it wasn't Nish slash Jimmy Page, right? That was in Nish's dream life. So who's the I in deep sleep? It's not like every night you wake up from deep sleep and you're like, oh, where did all that time go? You know, you check your watch and you check in with your friends and they all help you reason out that you must have slept deeply. No, you just on a preconceptual, nonverbal level experience having just had slept deeply, dreamlessly. There was someone there. There was an experiencer, even in the absence of experience. In the absence of waking objects, in the absence of dreaming objects, in fact, in the total objectlessness of deep sleep, you were still there. Yes. Yes. When, as Jared says, when you go to sleep, you are waking up. And when you wake up, you are going to sleep. When we die, we go back to where we go to sleep. Exactly. And, and oh, thank Austin. Oh, I'm so happy you're here. 
Thank you so much, Austin. And remember, um, Fabricio made a really good point the other day about birth. You know, we were talking about the fear of death as the ultimate fear, Abhinivesha. But yogis are very specific there. It's not, Abhinivesha is a fear of transition, you know. So that birth was a death in your previous life. Just as going to sleep is waking up in the dream, you see. So we're not so interested in these heart, like even the Buddha said the seed is the oak, right? Birth is death. The seed is the oak. The waking up and the falling asleep, as Jared pointed out, the dying and the being, it's all one thing. We're interested in that transition, you see. That's what we fear, even if it's birth or death. So here's, here's the, the clincher. Given that you were there when there was no waking self, nor was there a dreaming self, nor that shows you that you aren't the waking self, nor are you the dreaming self, nor are you even the absence of a self in, in deep sleep. You are the one who is observing all three. You are standing behind your life, so to speak. In other words, you are standing behind the theater or pantomime of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Knowing that it all comes and goes, again, Claire, the change of events coming into being and waking, going away and dreaming, events coming into being and dreaming, going away and deep sleep. Noticing this change, again, you can apply our change argument. Since you notice the change of all three states, you are not confined to any of those states. So what does it matter if uh, waking niche dies? In fact, what does it matter if dream niche dies? You know how they say you can't die in a dream, you'll just wake up? <laughs> There's something there, something to that. <laughs> Yet in the dream, you're afraid of death, right? So maybe you can apply that to the waking, I don't know. <laughs> you can't die, actually. You'll see. You can't die in the waking. As uh, Ramdas, remember, he, he, he asked, what should I teach people? And his friend Emmanuel said to him, Ramdas, uh, I don't know if it was Emmanuel, one of his friends, taught, uh, said to him, Ramdas, tell everyone that death is perfectly safe. Okay, and I want to close with this final argument. This, this argument is the most important. It makes sense of the other two. Now, you might get this sense of like dissociation, like, oh, if waking, dreaming, and deep sleep come and go, if things are changing and I am the change less, or at least the relatively less changing, then fuck it. I don't care about anything. You know, um, why should I be engaged in any of these things? And, and yes, you'll see in our literature language that kind of uh, expresses that attitude where it's like, yeah, the world comes and goes. What's it to you? If you can live like that, you can truly enjoy life, you know, because then you can enjoy what comes when it comes and be okay when it goes. You see? If you can truly live with the understanding that this is a dream or a video game or a matrix or what have you, then you can enjoy it because you can relax. You can actually play the game, you know? And now we're getting into some tantra with Shiva Leela, the game of Shiva. Like Shiva emanated this world, you, you being Shiva, by the way, emanated this world as art, as a playpen, as theater, as sport, just to play. But you can't really enjoy it. Yes, Jared, Shiva, presence, you know, Brahman, Atman. You can't really enjoy your play if it tyrannizes you. So one way to say this is, imagine how fun acting is. Here's Emily, you know, an actor, an actual actor, real life actor. But I'm sure Emily has played several roles in which she is a bereaved, suffering character. You know, I don't know if you do any Hamlet, Emily. <laughs> but um, there's many roles in which you play suffering and tragedy, but it rocks. You're like, get thee to the nunnery, Ophelia. And you're like, ah! And in and, and all of that drama, you're having fun. You're acting. You're doing your dharma, you know? What if life could be that for you? 
You see, the difference between the actor playing the role of a suffering beggar and the actual beggar is only in degree of knowledge. The actor knows she's playing a role. The beggar is completely identified with the role. And you see what happens to actors who identify a little too much, right? That actors who, oh yes, exactly, Emily. I was referencing that. Remember when you said that line? <laughs> Kidding, I didn't know. But um, uh, you see, um, imagine if you could live like that. You know, if you could live, because it's, you might think, oh, it's detachment. But no, the actor doesn't really play with detachment. The actor plays with tremendous love. And you know what? We love our actors because they can better be the beggar than the suffering beggar can. Suffering beggar is too much in her head to be the suffering beggar. The actor, because she can relax into that role, can really portray the role. And then the beggar gets a dime, goes and watches the movie and is like, (sighs) you know? Because the actor is doing them better than they're doing them. Jesus is doing you better than you're doing you, you know? Um, so if you can live like that, how liberating. That's moksha, you know, to live like an actor in this world, unaffected by the various roles you will play. And, and you will still play those roles. Why not, right? Why not? And if you don't want to play the roles, that's also okay. Can you imagine if suddenly you could walk out in your life right now, uh, just for fun, and set up shop somewhere and Puerto Rico or something and start again as a cobbler. I mean, you remember the world, the phenomena of the world is just a waking world phenomena. The dream is just the dream world phenomena. The, the um, deep sleep is just in the deep sleep. You are not in any of those states. They are in you. So given that this world is in you, why not move to Spain? Hang out with Fabricio in Brazil. Why not? Right? And, and you can do this with great joy because what's the worst that can happen to you? <laughs> the body dies. Ah, big whoop. You get captured and tortured. Well, when you're established in a state of peace, you can, you'll be okay. You remember in, in Princess Bride, how Wesley handled his torture? Yeah. <laughs> All of that, right? So here's the, the argument, though, that's really a clincher and really beautiful argument. While you aren't the change, right? While you aren't waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, you are the thing by which those things can occur. Without you, there could be no waking, there could be no dreaming, there could be no sleeping. You are not only separate from those things. You are the ground upon which those things appear. Now, this is truly the liberating idea of Advaita Vedanta. Because now, you stop loving one another as the other. You start loving one another as awareness loving itself. You can look someone else in the eye and go, oh my god. I'm me looking at me because only me exists and all of this is just an appearance. It's me in the prism of waking, in the prism of dreaming, and in the prism of deep sleep, but ultimately it's just white light, you know? Abhinava Gupta was asked, in a great master, he was asked, what is all of this? He said, light shining. Prakash, light shining, that's it. Maybe like Chris McCandles, right? Like his final words was just, all of this, it's light shining. That's true love. Because once you realize that you are not in the world, the world is in you, how much more intimate can you be with yourself? How much more intimate can you be then with yourself? Suddenly, you don't feel that weird sense of boundary like, oh, you're taking too much of my time. No, you will drink chai with your brother into the night. Whose time is being taken? (laughs) You can relax. The boundaries kind of fall away. Um, To be fair though, like your jiva tends to gravitate away from worldly people too much until you become super liberated. And then once you're fully there, you can hang out with everybody. It doesn't matter. 
you know. Um, but this is Advaita Vedanta, when you realize you are not the body, nor are you the mind. You are not the waker, nor are you the, the dreamer, nor are you the deep sleep person or lack of self. You are the one behind all of those things. In this moment, it's Hannah. That's who I really am, behind me. <laughs> no, uh, you are behind all of that, but you are also in all of that. And actually, it's funny that Hannah came in because Rumi has that beautiful statement. He says, um, the lover asked her, her lover, who do you love more, me or yourself? And the lover said to his beloved, my love, after loving you, what is left of me to love? <laughs> I've dissolved completely. When you hold a ruby up against a sunrise, is there still a ruby in your hand? Or is there not just a world of red? You see, you don't know how to love until you've died in love. God's love only kills the innocent. Okay, now you can put all of that together, right? We have these arguments that show you, you should not bother with the body or the mind. Meaning you should not bother with its pleasures. Nor should you bother with the fame of the mind. You shouldn't bother with the world because the world is on the level of body and mind in waking, you know? You shouldn't really bother with the dream like you're trying to lucid dream, you know? All that. Don't worry about it. It will disappear. Ultimately, you are that awareness in which those worlds come and go. So lest you worry, you are giving up the world. Here's what you're trading it for. You are trading the reflection for the real thing. What you thought was beautiful in the world, what you thought was worth living for, what you thought was sacred, they were. They truly were because they were catching a borrowed splendor. They were reflecting something else. So ultimately, this is the final claim of this tradition. Um, everything you can experience on the level of the body and the mind, we'll, we'll close here. Everything you can experience on the level of the body and mind is but a name. It's not the thing, it's but a name. It's a signifier for the thing signified. Every, and in Shankaracharya's language, everything you can experience, every beautiful encounter you've had, all of that is like a spray from the ocean that is awareness. Once you are established in awareness, there is such bliss, and don't mistake bliss as a particular flavor of emotion. It's the source of all emotions. It's categorically different than joy or happiness. It's so much more real and purposeful. Once you experience that ananda, that bliss, you cannot imagine holding on to the world. In fact, King Janaka, he said, pay me my fee now before I teach you. And the student said, what? Pay you your fee before you teach me? King Janaka laughed and said, because after I teach you, you will know Brahman. Will you even be conscious to give me any money? <laughs> it's funny. It's like a joke. You know, you won't be conscious after that to, to do transactions on this world. Uh, transactions of all kind. That's the traditional uh, point of view. Now, remember this claim, this claim that there is something to live for beyond all the narratives we've been offered so far does not put itself at odds with those narratives. It doesn't say pleasure is bad. Artha, wealth is bad, adventure is bad, dharma is bad. It doesn't say that. It says everything is great, each in its own place. And ultimately, all of it is just pointing at this thing. And when you find this thing, then what do you do? So we'll close. The purpose of life is to find this thing. And from there, to just go on doing what you did. Chop wood, carry water, right? Uh, act, roll, drink tea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is that you do. But now here's the difference. When you cobble that shoe, when you bake that bread, you know, Hazel, when you um, pour, pour that tea, what you do will liberate others. Naturally. Naturally. Because now you're doing it from a place of liberation. It carries that vibration. Where you live will be a holy place. 
you know, uh, what you give to people, you, you feed them, you'll be feeding their soul. Even if you feed them like trash, like puris. You know, in India at the ashram, they just feed you puris and potato all day. What a horrible diet, like fats, starches, sugars, oil. It's the most healthy food you will ever put in your mouth. Try it. Go to an ashram and eat their like fatty foods. You won't, it'll just, it's, it's not food anymore. It's prasad, metaphysical food. All right. So let's close with this line from Rumi. <laughs> yeah, Puri. The wall, uh, sunlight fell upon the wall. The wall received a borrowed splendor. Why set your heart on a piece of earth or clay? Seek out the source that shines forever. No need to tear down the wall. <laughs> All right. So let's close. Let's chant our ohms together. We'll do a, a, a peace prayer and uh, feel free to join in and we'll just end together here. All right. Aum. Sarvesham Svastir Bhavatu Sarvesham Shantir Bhavatu Sarvesham Mangalam Bhavatu Sarvesham Purnyam Bhavantu Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Oh, may all be happy here. May all be peaceful here. May all be auspicious here. May all feel completeness here. May the entire world know love and joy. Oh, peace, peace, peace.